No, Alan, you don't need to give me an introduction. I had the best introduction of the whole conference from that man right over there. <laughs> you know, relative to what Tracy said, at home I sometimes take my glasses off and kind of open my eyes real wide, look into my wife's eyes and say, whatever you think I did or whatever I did, I didn't do it. And what Tracy had to say, the accusations brought upon me by he and his wife, I did it. <laughs> he told it exactly like it happened. That's, uh, that's amazing. All right. My Bible. Got to change glasses, pull the Bible out, and we'll be set to go. Why do I change glasses? Well, I don't have to look at you with these. These are reading glasses. No, I see you pretty well. It's, you're a little bit fuzzy out there, but I like these because uh, these are the glasses I use with a computer at home. They're set for on out here. Work real good up here. All right, be turning to, uh, where are we? Genesis uh, 5. Genesis chapter 5. We're going to work through uh, uh, three chapters tonight. We worked through three this morning. Uh, somewhat along the same lines, spending about, uh, well, I'll spend quite a bit of time on the flood. I think you'll find some things that uh, I'll cover on the flood quite interesting. But I want to begin by a brief, uh, briefly encapsulating uh, uh, our study thus far, beginning in the first chapter. I'll just take a few minutes. I'm not going to belabor any point, but I want to kind of work into the data this evening. Now, starting in chapter 1, the Spirit of God moves across a ruined creation. This is the first act that God, uh, uh, res that results from God's action. You see, the, the ruined creation beneath the waters, waters covering the earth, totally incapable, apart from divine intervention, to bring itself out from its ruined state. Had God not acted and acted out that, that is, had he not acted at that time and through the intervening 6,000 years since, had he not acted, the earth would still be in that same state, totally incapable of bringing itself out. And that's the same as ruined man today. Apart from divine intervention, ruined man has no hope of anything. He would forever remain in his ruined state. Now, the Spirit of God moves, a first-mentioned principle. How does God move upon a ruined creation? The first thing he does to begin bringing that ruined creation out of its ruined state. Well, you've got it right there in the opening verses of Genesis. The Spirit of God moves across this ruined creation. Now, the Spirit and breath, are, the words for Spirit and breath are one and the same, whether you're talking about uh, Hebrew or Greek. It's ruah in the Hebrew and it's pneuma in the Greek. You can uh, really understand it either way. Insofar as ruined man is concerned, the Spirit of God breathes into that man. He has no breath that we see in uh, chapter 2. Man was created, created an inanimate object. God breathes into that man the breath of life. Man becomes a living soul. 
See, it's a little added information to chapter 1. And back in chapter 1, we find that when God does this, light comes into existence. And we see in 2 Corinthians a reference to this, that the light shined out of darkness. We saw in the Gospel of John that the darkness did not comprehend the light. Let me explain that word comprehend a little bit. It has to do with the, uh, the did I quote that right? The darkness had no comprehension of the light. I might have turned that around. The darkness did not comprehend the light once the light began to shine out of that darkness. Now, comprehend has to do, uh, let me translate that a little bit different to give you an understanding of what we're doing. The darkness had no understanding. It was totally alienated. It just couldn't, I mean, it was completely removed from the light. Had no, no, no understanding of it at all is the idea there. Now, we're, talking, we're dealing with the, the restoration of ruined creation from these first couple of chapters. Now we get on over into chapter 3, and we find uh, some added information. After Eve had partaken of the fruit, then Adam also partake of the fruit with a view to the redemption of both down the way in order that both might ascend the throne and realize the reason for their creation in the beginning. And this, of course will be realized in the second man, the last Adam, and his co-heirs, his bride. Now, you're not going to leave the first man, the first Adam, out of this, but we'll not get into this. He'll be brought back on the scene down the way at the time of the resurrection, have a place in this kingdom, undoubtedly. But we're talking about the first man, the first Adam, the second man, the last Adam, how it, how it will all be brought to pass. So in Genesis 3... Let me bring one thing uh, more out about Genesis 3. After they had lost this covering of glory, no longer in a position to wear regal garments, they tried to replace the covering of glory with fig leaves. God completely rejected their feeble efforts. He, uh, as in uh, when Christ came the first time, the, the fig leaves brought forth by the nation of Israel, apart from fruit, totally, re totally rejected. But the fig leaf aprons in Genesis 3, no replacement for the covering of glory. And actually, what God did is not a replacement for the covering of glory either. That's on down the way. But we find in Genesis 3 what God demands in the way of uh, or for or to effect man's salvation. And that is God clothed them with animal skin. In other words, the inference there is that one or more animals were slain. And here you have the introduction to death and the shedding of blood. So you see how the thought of uh, salvation begins to evolve uh, through Scripture. One thing added to another. You find that it's entirely through divine intervention. It's an entire work of God. It's by a death and shed blood. A man has to act in Genesis 3. Now in Genesis 4, we find an addition yet again. Here we find a man has to die relative to the death and shed blood. Cain slays Abel, typifying the coming slaying of Christ when Israel slays Christ. The blood of Abel crying out from the ground. The blood of Christ speaking better things than that of Abel. 
So this is what we're seeing in these opening chapters of Genesis leading into our text tonight. Now let me say this. Can you see now how helpful, man, it would be immensely helpful for any minister or any Christian in this country to see how God starts out showing the picture of how he redeems unsaved man. It would straighten out theology all through the churches of this land if the ministers would go back to the beginning of Scripture and study Scripture after the fashion in which God structured his word. Type after type after type showing how at the beginning, among other things, how he redeems fallen man. It's so simple. It would cut out all of this ideology. You've got to repent. You've got to confess your sins. You've got to do this. You've got to forsake that. No. It's entirely of divine intervention. Just receive the one that paid the price. I mean, that's it. And it's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's all in those first four chapters. And the fourth chapter sets a stage for, say, Genesis 22, where Abraham offers his son. A man has to die. That goes, then you go to Exodus 12. Then you see John the Baptist. When Christ was here the first time, maybe I should say John the Methodist, John the, really it was John the Baptizer, not Baptist, but he was baptizing. That's why they call him John. So many people think John started the first Baptist church. Well, let's not get into that. That's silly. All right. John looks upon Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. Now here's the Lamb that Isaac asked his father about. Here's the wood. Where's the Lamb? Here's the Lamb that was slain. Well, Lamb's all through the Old Testament, but Exodus 12 I want to home in on. Because there the Paschal Lambs were slain. The blood was properly applied. The Lord passed through the land of Egypt. What did he do? What, uh, when the Lord passed through the land of Egypt, what did he look for? Did he look inside those houses, see what they were doing, playing cards, uh, having a few drinks, that type? No. He looked for the blood. That's the only thing he looked for. Why? Because he knew if that blood was there, that the firstborn in that house had died in a substitute, recognizing substitutionary atonement in that respect. And it's substitutionary atonement, or really it's reconciliation. In this case, in the New Testament, you do know the difference between the two. No, you don't. I'll tell you. Some of you would. Some of you may not. But I'll explain what the difference is. Atonement has to do with covering. It covers sins. Atonement is a, it's a, an Old Testament word. It's a word that uh, would be used throughout the Old Testament. The blood of animals covered sin. God looked down toward the broken law, his commandments, uh, the blood on the mercy seat, and the blood covering this, he recognized that as a blood, as a covering. These offerings were uh, repeated year after year after year, but Christ offered one sacrifice. His blood does not atone for sin. His blood does not cover sin. 
Remember the Day of Atonement where they had two goats and uh, one goat uh, was slain, the other goat was uh, kept alive. The priest placed his hand over that goat after all the ceremony, the placing of blood on the mercy seat preceded by a bullock, but we're just talking about the goats. He placed his blood on the head of that goat, confessing his own sins, the sins of the people. That goat was taken away into the wilderness by a chosen individual never to return and symbolizing carrying the people's sins away. Now, that's what the blood of Christ does. It doesn't cover sin. It does away. Takes it as far from you as the east is from the west. All right, into Genesis 5. And in Genesis 5, we have a a ten-generation genealogy extending from Adam to uh, Noah. It covers, uh, well, I started to say 16. It's really 15, uh, 16, uh, 1556. Covers that many years, up to the 500th year of Noah. He, the flood came the 600th year, and I was having to think a little bit because I, uh, I had the 1656 number in my head. That's the time from the creation of Adam to the flood if you use a strict genealogy in uh, these ten generations. Now, you start out and uh, you find that Adam lived so many years and begat. His son lived so many, of course, this is a third son of Adam. His son lived so many years and begat. And you'll find that every one of them, after they begat, they begat sons and daughters beyond that. So you had the human race beginning to multiply. And it goes this way, and then they, they die. They keep dying. They die. They die. It goes this way until you get to the seventh generation. And that's the son of Jared, who is Enoch. Now, seven is a, a complete number. It's not the first complete number. Three is the first complete number on the way up. But God chose to bypass that. Nothing happened at the end of the, at the third generation. But when we get to the seventh generation, showing the completeness of that which is in view, it's also the God's number. Something uh, different happens. A man lives so many years, that is, Enoch lived so many years and uh, begat Methuselah. And uh, there's no record of Enoch's death. God took him off the earth alive. Then three more generations pass. And there's a man by the name of Noah appears on the scene. He's going to die later on, but before he dies, he goes through the flood. Now, what's all this telling us? Well, the first, uh, the first one, Enoch, at the end of a complete period of time, is taken out alive. Now, the next complete period of time, the number 10, that's our next number, we have a man that is here on earth, and goes through a worldwide flood that destroys all that which is on the earth aside from those in the ark. Now, I've often wondered about marine life. We're not going to get into that. Uh, Marine life might be another thing that could have uh, survived. I don't have any idea. But all the individuals on the face of the earth, the animals, uh, birds of the air, Every, all except in the ark, perished. So what we have here at the end of a complete set of generations, 
a man removed alive, pointing to the fact that the church is one day be going, going to be taken out off this earth. You say the church, where's the church mentioned before this time? That is Christians. Well, did you know that uh, Christians were mentioned before Israel? That's kind of strange. God, why didn't God deal with Israel, the elder son, first? You have Christians in John, uh, not John, Genesis chapter 2. How do you have Christians in Genesis 2? Well, Christians are the body of Christ, and the bride is to be taken out of the body. And Adam put to sleep, and his bride taken out of the body. That is, a rib taken out, and the bride formed from that rib. So we have a teaching about the church, the bride of Christ, before we have a teaching about Israel, which gets you into, well, really you could see Israel in chapter 3, but more so in chapter 4. Why, why in chapter 3? Because it was Israel who slew their Messiah, who slew Christ, and Adam partaking of sin typifies Christ becoming sin for us who knew no sin, and that happened at Calvary. Now, the death of Christ, who slew Christ, that was a subject that came up uh, some years ago when this Mel Gibson film came out, and all the churches bought up the tickets and took people out and thought it was the grandest thing in the world, but uh, the Bible is a whole lot better. But at any rate, there was this ideology thrown around about, uh, they, 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 they did backflips to absolve the Jew of slaying Christ. They thought that was anti-Semitic to... Uh, uh, say Israel slew Christ. They were responsible for Christ's death. And they were trying to turn it around and say, no, you were responsible because of your sins. Well, that's what resulted in it. That's true. But who slew Christ? Man, it's a, that's, a, that's a biblical, that's a question that's answered so many places in Scripture. You start out in Genesis 4. The first answer is there. Cain slays Abel, Israel slays Christ. Now let me ask you a question. To whom was the Paschal Lamb given in Exodus 12? And who only can slay the Paschal Lamb? Check it out, it's Israel. In Acts chapter 2, ye men of Israel, you've taken by wicked hands and have slain this one. Direct statement relative to that. Do you realize that absolving Israel is a, probably one of the most heinous crimes that is seeking to absolve Israel? One of the most heinous crimes that's ever been perpetrated against the Jewish people? You need to turn that around. And recognize what scripture has to say and praise the Jewish people because they did do it if they hadn't done it. You wouldn't have a Savior because no one else could slay the Messiah. No one else could slay Christ. Israel had to slay Christ. It was all in God's plan for this nation. This is one reason that God called Israel into existence. To bring forth the Messiah, then slay the Messiah. Think about that a little bit. Now let's get back to the lesson. We have, we have here... A man taken out alive, typifying the church being taken out alive at the end of a complete period of time. It's at the end of this dispensation that the church will be removed. 
Then at the next end of the next complete period of time, we have a man going through this time of trouble, typifying Israel going through the tribulation right out ahead. Now let me present a scene to you a little bit different, and it's not really in the text, but I want to present something to you a little bit different for your thinking so you can understand where Israel will be when they enter into this time. Of course, the church will be in the heavens before the judgment seat of Christ. And as one preacher of past years, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who pastored, I believe, is a Presbyterian church in Philadelphia, if I remember right, said years ago that many Christians, though they're not going through the tribulation, once they are in the heavens before the judgment seat of Christ, what they will face there, they may wish they were back on earth in the tribulation. You can let that run through your cranium a little bit. And that's a very, very true statement. Now, here's, this, here's a picture I want to uh, present uh, before you. We have Daniel's 70th week. God stopped the clock at the end of the 69th week. That was at the point the son was crucified. Right at the end of this time, at the crucifixion of Christ, somewhere right in that particle of time, God stops the clock. Now, Christ had to be crucified within the 69th week for the simple reason that it talks about the Messiah being cut off within Daniel's prophecy, and anything within this uh, stated within this prophecy has to occur within the 70 weeks itself. Now, that's why you can know that this part of in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, when it talks about Jerusalem being destroyed, that's why you can know that's not 70, the destruction in 70 AD under Titus, because that occurred outside of the prophecy. Since it didn't occur during the first 69 weeks, you know it has to be during the 70th. That is a destruction of Jerusalem, which will take place in the middle of the tribulation. The Jews that are over there today, when the man of sin with his armies come in and uproot them, destroy the city, scatter the Jews to the ends of the earth. The ones that are not killed are sold into slavery and uh, Gentile captivity or the remnant that uh, there's a remnant that will escape to a specially prepared place in the wilderness. Is that Petra? I don't have any idea. Nobody else can tell you it's Petra for sure either. It's a specially prepared place. God has chosen not to reveal it. So many people believe it's Petra. Well, let them believe it if they want to. We'll find out down the way. I'm satisfied to leave it alone, let God take care of it, and get on with something more important rather than try to guess where this is. All right. Here's, here's the scene. After, after God has removed the church, now the 70th week of Daniel does not start immediately. There'll be a, per a period of time, it may be a few days, it might be a month or so, certain events have to occur. One, uh, one event uh, has to occur, is, uh, or a series, is in uh, Revelation chapter 5, where the sun uh, comes, uh, the scene where, uh, well, the, really the four and, four and five, uh, where the uh, 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne, uh, well, really, it's a judgment seat, the whole scene there. But 
in uh, Revelation 5, the son has to take this scroll out of the father's right hand. It's these events that have to occur following the removal of the church before the 70th week begins. The 70th week can't begin until the seals of this scroll begin to be broken. This is what begins the 70th week. It's when the man of sin makes this covenant with many in Israel. But it'll have to be a relatively short period of time. Perhaps uh, you might liken it to the uh, time elapsing between uh, the, the uh, end of the 69th week and the beginning of this present dispensation, about, uh, what, 53 days, you see, short period of time. Now you're seen. I keep uh, talking about something and not getting to the scene. All right, when that 70th week does begin, place the 69th and the 70th together. The generation that is alive, they're probably, they're undoubtedly alive and on earth today. This generation of Jews alive will be placed in a position as if they had just crucified their Messiah within the scope of Daniel's 70th week. Now, I want you to notice something else. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that killeth the prophets, stoneth them which are sent unto thee. In fact, if you read that passage out of Matthew 23, you'll find that all, that have, all the blood that's been shed all the way back to Abel's laid to the account of the Jews. Generations back, generations back, generations passing change nothing. The generation of Jews that are alive, that is alive out there today. The Jews here in Chattanooga, Jews in the United States, Jews in Israel, anywhere in the world. The generation of Jews on the earth today is just as guilty of slaying their Messiah as a generation of Jews living 2,000 years ago that did it. Now that's from a biblical standpoint. All right, let's keep on going. Now, in chapter 6, we see the reason for the flood, and then we'll get into the flood because I want to spend a little bit of time there showing you something of interest about the uh, uh, hydrology and so forth, the mechanics of the flood itself. Chapter 6, let's read a few verses. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now, see, see, what, see what Scripture's doing here? It's gone through ten generations. It's taken you down to Noah, a century and a half beyond the creation of Adam. Now, all at once, it drops all the way back to the very beginning of the human race. Remember what I told you about Scripture? It'll cover a certain segment, then it'll go back and provide commentary. And just keep going back, providing commentary more and more and more. Now... It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, took them wives. Now that word wives doesn't necessarily mean marriage. They just took women from the human race. There could have been a marriage. There could have been all types of polygamy. There's no telling what happened in those days. They just took women out of uh, from the daughters of Adam, uh, the offspring of uh, uh, the lineage of Adam as it had uh, multiplied uh, through a matter of a year, centuries. They took these women, all which they chose. 
Now, who are these sons of God? Here's an interesting thing about uh, seeking to identify, say, sons of God, an expression of this nature. Sons of God in Scripture are always created beings. For example, Adam was a son of God, but none of his descendants were sons of God unless, unless, and I'll get into that unless in just a moment. No, his uh, immediate descendants were not sons of God. They were sons of Adam. Now, all angels are sons of God because they're individual creations of God. Satan, for example, is a son of God. All the angels ruling under him are sons of God. Now, I was speaking along this line in Denver years ago to a group in a motel uh, a conference room. I had maybe 30, 40 people there. There was a lady sitting right out here in the middle of the group. And about at this point in the message, she just got up and started waving her hand, said, Stop, stop, I can't take it anymore. Satan is not a son of God. You know, she thought I was saying Satan is saved. Listen, sonship has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with creation. Now, Jesus is God's only begotten son. Did you know that Israel is a son of God? Not only a son of God, but God's firstborn son. How did that come about? Well, Isaiah 43. In the day that I created thee, O Jacob. God took Jacob and formed a special creation out of Jacob. And then, now this had to do with Jacob, not Israel. Jacob, the natural man. Thus, from his loins, the de his descendants can also be looked upon as sons of God because of the natural man. And actually, uh, in uh, Isaiah, uh, individual Jews are looked upon as sons of God. And it's always the sons of Israel. Now, your King James reads children of Israel. It's really the, the word uh, every time, whether Hebrew or Greek, it's sons of Israel because of their sonship standing. I see a lot of sons of God out here. Children of God and also sons of God. How can you be both? Well, you're a child of God, and a child of God, in the light of Hebrews 12, let's read these verses. I think they'll be of interest to you. Now, Christians are called children of God, and they are also called sons of God in Scripture, and they're called children of God about an equal number of times to that of being called sons of God. Now, in Hebrews, uh, I, want to, I really want two references, but I'm going to go to Hebrews 12 to show you something. And then I'll reference a verse back in Romans 8. And the verse I want to reference in Romans 8 is, As many as are being led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. But what, what if you're not being led by the Spirit of God? Well, then you might look at another aspect of this. And let's read it in the light of the way it's presented in Hebrews 12. In verse 5, 
And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Really, that word children should be sons, which speaketh unto you as unto sons. My son, despise not the chastening. That's really child training. Child, it's child training as sons. Now look, as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They're recognized as sons, that is, child training, a child training of a Christian with a view to sonship and because a, a Christian is a special creation in Christ, he can be looked upon as a son. Now, we're not firstborn sons. Firstborn has to do with adoption. But out ahead, after the adoption occurs, then God will have a third firstborn son. Israel, a son by creation, but then a firstborn son when God adopted Israel. Christ, a firstborn son via birth, God's firstborn son, God's only begotten firstborn son. God has one created firstborn son, one only begotten firstborn son, but he's about to have a second created and adopted firstborn son, and that will be the church, as the church it would be used out ahead in its true sense, and the word church, ecclesia, means called out, and really it's called out of the body in its sense as the church will be looked upon out ahead. Today we look upon the church in a larger sense, but out ahead in the narrower sense, called out of the body, the bride removed from the body, presented to the son in order that the son can reign. Now, let's, with that in mind, let's just continue with the rest of this. In verse 6, well, let's read verse 5 again. I've talked so much, let's just start over. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto sons. My son, despise not the child training of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he, he child trains. And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure child training, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father does not child train? See, as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. These are the ones that God is child training. Now look at verse 8. But if ye are without this child training whereof all have become partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Bastard is probably a good word. It has to do with illegitimate. Sure, you're saved, but you're not being trained. You're not allowing God to train you as one of his sons with a view to the coming inheritance. That's what's in view there. Now, let's go back to... Uh, Genesis 6, I trust that you understand that sonship has to do with creation. Adam, angels, Israel, Christians today. Now look at that verse. The sons of God saw the daughters of men. 
If you have a Schofield reference Bible, forget the footnote. It's all wrong. There's no way you can say that these are any, any of these individuals are anything other than angelic beings in the kingdom of Satan. How all of this occurred, I have no idea. Wouldn't even begin to try to explain it. But they took these, the female offspring from the lineage of Adam down through the centuries and produced what is called, using, well, it's called giants. In uh, King James, they used more of the uh, thought from the Septuagint, which used the Greek word for giants. And the uh, Hebrew word is Nephilim. Now, remember what I told you this morning about how to pluralize a word in the Hebrew text. Notice I said Nephilim. It's plural. Now, it comes from a word which means to fall, and that's nephal. Nephal, im, nephilim. These, that's the way they're uh, referred to in the uh, uh, Hebrew text. Uh, they, I don't know why they translated Well, I do know why they translated it giants. So looking by probably at the Septuagint, I'm not saying they did go to the Septuagint. I, I shouldn't say that. I believe I did a minute ago, but... I need to correct myself in that respect. I don't know that they did, but in all probability, because this is the way the Septuagint handles it. The Septuagint, that's the Greek translation that they would have had access to in that day. Now, and these, uh, these fallen ones became mighty men. I mean, they were, they were huge. They were giants. Uh, one of them, Og, uh, king of Bashan, had a bed about 14 feet long. And uh, these individuals might account for uh, some of Greek mythology. Who knows? They may account for how the uh, stones were moved to build the pyramids. Who knows? A lot of things that could be possibly explained by things of that nature if people understood uh, that these, uh, who these giant, gigantic beings possibly with superhuman strength actually were. They began to corrupt the human race. Now, this started very early in the human race. Started back uh, during the very early years. It went on for centuries on top of centuries on top of centuries. The flood happened or occurred 1,656 years after the creation of Adam. So it could have gone on for possibly a century, uh, a millennium and a half. I believe I, a while ago, somewhere down the line, I think I said century for millennium, but... Uh, uh, let it go. People were listening to the tape later on. I'm sure they'll catch me and say the guy doesn't have a lick of sense, and they're right. But uh, let's uh, let's keep going from there. Now let's uh, that we've solved that problem. Let's get on down the way. And uh, well, let me back up to verse 32 before we do. It says of uh, the previous chapter, verse uh, chapter five. Noah was 500 years old, and he begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Did you know that uh, Noah had a whole lot of brothers and sisters? And many of them could have been alive at the time of the flood and perished in the flood. Now, his father died five years before the flood. And Methuselah died the year of the flood. So anyone in this genealogy of nine generations leading into Noah, all nine had passed off the scene via death except one. He was taken out alive. And I, I point that, uh, I call attention to that for a reason. Uh, well, let's save the reason for just a minute on down. God saw what was happening on the earth, 
how the, the entire the, the human race was gradually becoming corrupted. Uh, apparently, Satan's attempt to just wipe the human race out and uh, hold on to the reins of power, prevent the seed of the woman from appearing on the scene and crushing his head back in uh, Genesis 3. Now we have, again, uh, 610, uh, reference to Noah's three sons. And note that they're always listed in the same order. Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Look back at verse 32. Shem, Ham, Japheth. They're mentioned a couple of more times on down. It's always the same order. What's the significance of the order? Well, I'll tell you in a little bit what the significance of the order is. But let's keep going. And you're going down. God tells Noah to build, uh, that he, uh, he instructs him to build an ark. And he gives him the dimensions of the ark. And uh, as I believe it was Royce pointed out, there's not a whole lot stated about anything else except the type wood. And uh, three, uh, there are three stories to the ark. Now, to give you an idea of the size of the ark, Let's see, let me pick it up right here in verse 15, 615. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. Now, a cubit could vary slightly in length. For example, a cubit was the length from the elbow out to the tip of this finger. I measured my cubit the other day. It was 19 inches. They usually use 18 inches. A little bit uh, shorter person, probably have a good, uh, just maybe, I'm, I'm 6'0". Uh, I used to be, I'm probably 5'11". Now I keep shrinking a little bit with the age. But uh, 5'10", 5'9", person, probably have a perfect cubit here in that respect. 18, let's just use 18 inches. That's what's normally used. All right, if you set this arc in a football field, a football field, let's, let's just use the playing area. 100 yards, 60 yards. Uh, it would be, it's about six, it's six times as long as it is wide. Now, it wouldn't be hardly as wide as a football field, almost. I mean, hardly as wide as half of a football field. It'd be pretty narrow stretching down, but it would overlap that football field another half of a, uh, let's see, 300, another half of a football field, roughly. 450 feet, a football field is uh, 300 feet. It's 450 feet long, so you'd have a hard time fitting it in the stadium. The width of it, uh, you could fit it on there real easy. But that might give you some idea of the size. Now, the height of it, wasn't, it wasn't all that high. It was, uh, what, 30, 30 cubits, 45 feet. And uh, each room was uh, a little higher than a standard. Uh, the, the ceiling was a little higher than a standard room we might have in a house. Some of those animals might have been a little large. Then again, they needed airspace and so forth. But the size of this ark, I noticed one person figured it out. They said, uh, said you could fit 150 boxcars on a freight train into this ark, the size of it, if you're concerned about Noah putting a, or fitting all those animals into different rooms and uh, etc. And on the, uh, on the above, it had a window, but the window actually not just a window as such. It's kind of an open area all it uh, around, uh, at least around part of the ark to give some ventilation on the inside. And uh, that's really about the only information we have about this ark. 
Now, back in the first part of the chapter, I'm not sure I read it, there's a 120-year period. Let's go back and look at it because I want to talk about that just a minute. Then I'm going to get into the mechanics of the flood, and uh, that'll take a little while. I need, I need a little while, and then we'll bring this to a close. But in, uh, in, yeah, I stopped and didn't read verse 3 for a reason because I don't understand a word of it when I read it. No, not really. It's a simple verse to read, understand, but you have to have a couple of keys to it. And the Lord said, my, now that's ruah, it can be understood as spirit, breath. My ruah will not always strive with man, for he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in 120 years. How many of you have ever heard, you don't need to raise your hand, I'm just asking a rhetorical question. How many of you have ever heard uh, that Noah was 120 years building the ark and that he preached for 120 years and didn't get a single convert? I mean, that's, that makes a nice evangelistic message. Again, there's not a word of truth in the message. Noah didn't preach, he was a preacher of righteousness. He might have preached 120 years. He probably preached a lot longer than that. But he didn't preach trying to get people in an ark during any of that time because God told him exactly who was going in that ark. None of his brothers and sisters were. His three sons, their wives, his wife, eight people were going in that ark along with a lot of animals, and that was it. But what's this verse all about? The Lord said, "My really, it's, it should be understood as breath, not spirit. The Lord said, my breath will not always, now the Hebrew word that's used here, doom, it could better be understood as, uh, trans, uh, I'll state the whole thing again, I'll somewhat lead into this. My spirit shall not always remain in man in the sense of keeping him alive. He's also flesh, yet his days shall be in 120 years. Now it's true that this statement would have been made 120 years before the flood. But, this is not the time God told Noah that he uh, to build, uh, commanded him to build an ark, told him what was about to happen. That's on down in the chapter after Noah's sons are, are uh, seen as grown and married and have wives. Now, how old was Noah when he begat three sons in verse 32, chapter 5? Noah, 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham and Japheth. Actually, he didn't beget all three at the age of 500, but we'll get to that in a little bit. He begat one son and then the other two sons at a later time. How much later? Again, we'll get to that in just a moment. But go on down to verse 10. Again, Noah begat three sons. And it's after that that God told Noah... Well, let's just read 12, 13. God looked upon the earth. It was very corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come to me. The earth is filled with violence. And he tells him to make an ark and uh, the fashion he's to make it of, a window. And uh, the ark is to be made. Look at verse 18. But with thee will I establish my covenant. Thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. How long was it before the flood at this point when God told Noah? 
Well, it had to be far under 100 years, maybe 50 years. We're not told. Enough time had to elapse from Noah's 500th year when he really he began to begat. You're going to find that the oldest son was Japheth. The youngest son was Shem. Ham was in between. Ham could have been a twin of Japheth or he could have been a twin of Shem or he could not have been a twin. But that's the order of the birth. uh, They were born in the reverse order in which they're shown here. Can I prove that? Well, sure, that's simple to do, but I'll do it in a little bit when we get on over into this. When Noah was 500 years old, he begat Japheth. When Noah was 502 or 3, he begat Shem, and Ham fits between the two. That's why I say possibly Ham was a twin. Now, if we make Ham, if, if Ham were a twin of Shem, it would fit quite well because Ham would be born before Shem and God rejects first things and chooses second things. For example, he rejected the first ruler of this earth and chose a second. He's rejected man at his first birth, chosen a second. He's rejected this earth, chosen a second out ahead, the new heavens and new earth. He rejected Ishmael, chose Abraham's secondborn, Isaac. On and on you could go with first and second things. But I don't know that Ham was a twin of Shem. I'm just pointing out something, the possibility. Now, before we go further and I forget it, let's, uh, because after this, I'm going to get into the mechanics of the flood and spend quite a bit of time there. And... uh, then we'll close this, and I may never get back to it, and it really wouldn't fit down the way, but it will fit here. At least I don't think it would fit down the way. I'm not sure where I'm, I know where I'm going, but when I get down the way, I may throw something in that would make it fit, but let's, let's do it right here. Now, again, look at your order as they're shown. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, born in the reverse order given. Noah's 500 years old. How old was Noah when the flood came? Look down in 7-6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. Now, look down at a genealogy. Go down to 11-10. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. If Shem were born when Abraham was, uh, not Abraham, but Noah was 500 years old, as it seems to almost intimate when it said Noah lived 500 years and begat Shem, Ham, Japheth, how could he be only 97 or 98 at the time of the flood, when the flood came in the 600th year of Noah's life? You see, Shem had to be born a couple of, when Noah was either 502 or 3. Now, I'm, I'm allowing a year there because I don't know. I, I probably should know, but I don't, whether they're talking about the beginning or the end of the flood. You see, when the water began to come down, the water began to come up. It was 371 days from that point to where the flood really ended and Noah was allowed to go out of the ark. So you have a year to work with there. 
But ever, however you look at it, Shem was not born in Noah's 500th year, either his 502nd or 503rd. Now, look back over to, uh, well, and uh, I don't want that one. I, uh, there's a, it's Ham. Right, let's look at something about Ham while we're here. It's in chapter 9. It's in verse 24. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. Now, the Hebrew word that's used here can be understood as younger or youngest. But it's Noah awoke and knew what, there's a younger son. So we know that Ham couldn't have been born last. There's a younger son, but Japheth is the elder, down in 2010-21. His brother Japheth, the elder son. Now, if you have an NASB, you would probably have it reading that Shem was the elder uh, son of uh, Japheth. But uh, let me see, I have it, uh, let me look at something here. Shem, the older brother of Japheth, that's the way it reads in the NASB, which couldn't be because Shem was born beyond Noah's 500th year. Shem couldn't be the oldest. He had to be a younger son, and he really had to be the youngest. Now, the NIV, like King James, has it correct. So you can throw out your NASB there. It's wrong. They should have checked the context and known that it can. Now, here's the thing. It can be translated from the Hebrew text either way. So insofar as the Hebrew text is concerned, all three translations are correct. But insofar as the context is concerned, the NASB is not correct. So let's... Don't throw the NASB out, though, because I found a mistake. I find mistakes in this one, too. So you can find mistakes in any translation. They're translated by men capable of mistakes and so forth. But all right, now let's, uh, let's drop it there. Well, let me show you one other thing about this reverse look on things. Go over to Genesis 11. Now, here's another way that I know that the order I've given you for birth is correct. In 1126, Terah, the father of Abraham, lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. All right, we have the same thing there that we saw in Genesis 5. Noah lived 500 years and begat Sham, Ham, and Japheth. Here, Terah lives uh, 70 years and begats three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. All right, let's, re- let's keep on going down here. Abraham, well, let's read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12. Here's what Abraham was told at the age of 70 in Ur of the Chaldees. How do I know this? Well, I can go to two places that, uh, and uh, show you how I know it, and that is in uh, Exodus 12 where you have a 430-year period, which takes you back to this, and in the book of Galatians, 
where the law was given 430 years after the promise. Now here's the promise. Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. And I'll make of thee a great nation. I'll bless thee, make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is what God told Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees at the age of 70. Now, the father, Terah, exercising patriarchal headship, took the son and started for the land of Canaan, though Abraham was told to get out of his father's house. Abraham, uh, allowing uh, disobedience in this respect, also Lot going with him, a disobedience there as well. Now, God stopped matters in uh, Haran and uh, where Terah died, but he allowed Lot to go on into the land. Now go down in, uh, to verse 32 in chapter 11. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, if Abraham were born when Terah was 70 years old, he should be 130 years old at this point, before he ever left Haran. So how old is he at this point? Well, look at verse 4 in chapter 12. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. In short, Abraham was born when Terah was 130 years old, not 70. Now look at verse 7 again. Well, verse, 12, verse 26, I'm sorry. And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. You have to reverse the order again. He begat Haran at this age. Nahor, we don't know. Abraham, many years later, when he was 130, not 70. So do you see how the order is reversed? Now, why God set it up that way, I have no idea. But let's go back to the flood and get an idea of what happened there and bring this to a close somewhere down the way. Now, in chapter, I'll try to hurry through this. I'm going to ask a couple of questions. I want you to think about this. God opened the windows of heaven, and water began to gush out upon the earth. Where did that water come from? Did you know we've already read about where it came from? We read about it in the first chapter of Genesis. Turn back and look at it. Events of day two. Start with verse 6, Genesis 1, 6. And God said, let there be a firmament, that's an atmosphere, in the midst of the waters, in the middle of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament, under the atmosphere, from the waters which were above the atmosphere. And it became so. God called the firmament heavens. The evening, then came evening, then came morning. There's where the waters came from. You had a large quantity of water above the atmosphere. In what form? I have no idea. Some type of canopy of water in evidently in some type vapor form, the light could still come through. 
It somehow filtered out harmful rays of the sun. Individuals before the flood, they lived eight, nine hundred years. Methuselah, nine sixty-nine. The average lifespan of nine generations. I've left Enoch out because he was taken out alive. He didn't die. But the average lifespan from Adam to Noah, excluding Enoch, 912 years. How did man live so long before the flood? That canopy of water up there somehow filtered out harmful rays of the sun along with possibly another thing and possibly other things that I don't have any idea about. But that canopy of water above the atmosphere possibly and probably did produce a higher pressure upon the earth than we know today. Now that can almost be proved because of uh, something that was found by an archaeologist that goes back prior to the flood, and it has to do with uh, some type of uh, uh, iron that had been cast to made, to made into something that cannot be done today, but it could be done under higher pressure. And evidently, it was the higher pressure prior to the flood that produced that. Now, this will all fit into tomorrow's lesson when we get into wine prior to the flood, after the flood. But let's leave it at uh, that point now. There's a lot we don't know about this. Incidentally, I'll, I'll add this about man's longevity. Noah, after the flood, lived quite a long time. Apparently, his genes were in good shape, and he could survive for a number of years after the flood. In fact, he lived to within, I believe, five years of Abraham. Shem lived well into the life of Abraham, almost to the end of that time. Shem's genes apparently had been uh, pretty well uh, protected, uh, you might say, by living uh, 97 or 8 years prior to the flood, set to live a number of years. But the first generation after the flood... The time, the longevity was cut almost in half, down to 400 for several generations, then down to three, two, down to one by the time of Abraham, near 200 years. I believe Abraham, what did he live, 175 in that neighborhood. I could, we could look and uh, check. But there was something about that canopy of water up there. Now, God just opened the floodgates of heaven. That water started to gush out. And it gushed out for 40 days and nights unstopped. Subterranean waters began to come up for 40 days and nights unstopped. Now, the word that's used for rain is the Hebrew word relative to torrential rain. I mean, this was... This was like a thunder. This was probably much more than the severest, severest thunderstorm we could have today that just continued and continued and continued unstoppable. Now, at the end of 40 days, the complete earth was covered, the highest point on earth, to a depth of about 25 feet. Evidently, the ark could float over that. Now, don't think of the ark as an ocean-going vessel. The ark wasn't made to sail anywhere. It didn't have a sail on it. It didn't have a motor. It was made to float. It may very well have been just kind of a box with a flat bottom. We're not told. What happened at the end of 40 days? Nothing. 
That water kept coming down and kept coming down for another 110 days. That subterranean water kept coming up and up for another 110 days. It was at the end of the entire 150 days that God closed the floodgates of heaven, shut off the subterranean waters, and here's the ark resting above the Ararat mountain range, above a ruined earth, above a destroyed earth. Now I want to move over to chapter 8, Genesis chapter 8. That'll put us on the 150th day. Then I'm going to present you with a question. I want you to think a little bit. But let's read a couple of verses. In verse 24 of chapter 7, And the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Just ignore the chapter break. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made his ruah, his breath. Now, if we're going to understand it as breath here, we're going to have to understand it the same way in Genesis 1. We've got to understand both of these the same way. If you're going to understand it as spirit in Genesis 1, that's verse 2, the spirit of God moved across the face of the waters or the breath of God across the face of the waters. This is where God establishes the foundation a first mentioned principle relative to how he restores a ruined creation. He's going to have to restore the earth at this point exactly the same way. The Spirit of God or the breath of God moves across the face of the waters. And the waters began to go down. And the fountains also of the deep, the windows of heaven, were stopped. This is at the end of 150 days. And the rain, this is the word for torrential rain, from heaven was restrained, and the waters returned from off the earth continually. After the end of the 150 days, and the waters diminished. Now look at verse 4. And the ark rested on the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, that's exactly 150 days, upon the mountains of Ararat. Now, let me ask you a question, and then we'll find an easy answer to the question. If at the end of 40 days, the waters were deep enough that the ark could float over any mountain, and this torrential rain continued, and the subterranean waters kept coming up, how could the ark at the end of another 110 days of this type uh, water uh, supply that was placed upon the surface of the earth or on top of the waters already here, which would have, it, it could only have de uh, deepened the waters considerably, possibly thousands of feet above the nearest land. If that's true, and it would have to be, how could the ark rest upon a mountain peak at the end of the 150 days, on the day that God stopped? Well, the sad truth of the matter is, or the truth of the matter is, it didn't. Take a look at verse 4 again. The ark rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, that's at the end of the 150-day period, 
At the time God stopped the waters from coming down, stopped the waters from coming up, upon the mountains of Ararat. That is what it says, isn't it? Probably any translation you have, that's what it says. All right, go back up to verse 1, where it says God made his ruah, either his spirit or his breath, to pass over the earth. See that word over? That's the same word in the Hebrew text is translated up on in verse 4. Why don't we translate it the same both places? Try translating it over in verse 4 and you'll find out what has happened. The ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month above or over the mountain, this mountain range, Ararat, the mountains of Ararat. That's a mountain range extending from Armenia through parts of Turkey today. Now, the highest point in that range today is about 17,000 feet. There are lesser surrounding peaks about 4,000 feet below that. There's uh, two peaks close together. They call one Greater Ararat and the other Lesser Ararat. Greater Ararat close to 17, Lesser Ararat more like 13,000 feet. But... Here's a problem with uh, looking at heights over there today because the heights of mountain peaks change over centuries of time. Volcanic activity, and actually those mountains are the result of volcanic activity. So we don't know that those mountains were really that high at that time. But we do know that they were there and that the ark rested at a point above the Ararat mountain range. What's the significance of that? Well... That carries great significance. And if you get this right, then you can see a type that will hold true, that will set the stage for later types and points to that which will happen out ahead in the Messianic era. A mountain in Scripture signifies a kingdom. We have mountains signifying world kingdoms. We have Noah and his family in the ark in a place of safety, carried safely through this time of trouble where the world powers, the the mountains are all covered, the uh, people destroyed, as so as to say, the world powers destroyed, all the mountains covered over. And what we have here is a picture of Israel in the end, carried safely through the tribulation with world kingdoms destroyed. Notice, These mountains below the ark, the ark resting above these mountains. Israel above the world kingdoms in that day, no longer at the tail, placed above. Now, do I know that that's the way it really was? Let's keep on reading and you'll see. Before we keep on reading, though, let me present you with a question. How do you suppose God caused those waters to diminish? And we're going to see something about the third day back in chapter 1 by the answer to this uh, question. What happened to those waters? They didn't go back up into the heavens. They're uh, They're not up there today. They evidently didn't go into subterranean sources. According to uh, the geological survey, only 3% of the Earth's water supply is below the surface, and that's probably pretty accurate with the Uh, measuring instruments they have in use today. What happened to it? Did it evaporate? Now let me tell you something about evaporation, meteorology, and so forth. 
The atmosphere can only hold so much water. If you completely saturate an atmosphere, let's take a given area and a lake below that, or parts of the ocean below that, but let's take a lake, let's take it 10 miles on a, on a side, and uh, a square lake, that'd be a little different, but let's just take that for the sake of, of uh, having something to illustrate this. And the atmosphere above that lake becoming, pulling water out of that lake, evaporation, and the atmosphere becoming completely saturated. It can hold no more. How much water do you suppose, uh, how far down do you suppose that 10-mile uh, square uh, lake would go? It would go down about six, seven, eight inches. It would take that much water to saturate the atmosphere completely. But do you know something? That saturated atmosphere, that water will condense and fall back. All you would have there is just a continuous water cycle. The atmosphere can't hold anymore. That water has to go somewhere. It will condense, fall back into that point. In other words, in short, if we have evaporation taking that flood water up, all you would have is this water, maybe thousands of feet above the land, just rising and lowering a few inches over an eternity. It would, be, it would be there today. The entire earth would be covered by, with water. Now, how did God, what did he do with that water? Well, the Bible tells you. Anyone want to tell me where I should go to find the answer? Do I hear anything? I'll ask, I'll ask for a, oh, come on. Turn to Psalm 104. And then you're going to find out something about Genesis 1 third day Psalm 104 <clears throat> let's start with verse 4 I want to read a few verses I also want to correct the text and the uh, NASB is correct on this one. Verse 4, Who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire? Who laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever? Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled, at the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. Now, I'm going to read the King James in verse 8, and then I'm going to... Uh, read it more like you'll see it in your NASB and also NIV. They go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys under the place which thou hast founded for them. Literally, that should read from the Hebrew text, the mountains rose, the valleys sank. Now let's keep on reading to get something, to understand something. Verse 9, Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. So we know from verse 9 that we're talking about the Noachian flood at this point, not the flood back in Genesis 1. But, bear something in mind, the flood back in Genesis 1 had to be done the same way that is in order for dry land to appear. What did God do here? What did, what did he do after the flood? He began to raise land masses, and he began to lower other land masses. 
In short, if you live, uh, if you're out where I live, we have the Rocky Mountain Range. Over here, it's the Appalachian. They're not all that high, but either one could illustrate the point. Raising land masses, water's rushing out from these land masses, digging out the Grand Canyon, for example, digging out other places, the whole western U.S. where it's not forested over, and out there we don't have enough water to forest it over. It's just massive erosion. How did this happen? It happened by God raising these land masses, lowering what we know today as the Pacific Ocean, lowering the Pacific Basin, waters rushing out across this land, just eroding it, eroding the Grand Canyon, actually the uh, canyon, uh, the valley that we live in. It's just a miniature Grand Canyon. It's an area that was eroded out by the flood when these waters began to rush out toward what we know today as the Pacific Ocean. Over in this part of the country, out towards the Atlantic, you have your continental divide out west, one side and the other, rushing toward these ocean basins where they are, uh, where it exists today. The, the uh, land masses being raised in one place, being lowered in another. Evidently, we didn't have mountains before the flood, uh, anything near what we have today. Uh, Himalayas, people wonder how the flood could have uh, risen 30,000 feet. We have, no, we have no data to work with to even know or even give an inkling as to how high mountain peaks or hills were before the flood. But we know how God rectified the situation and displaced the waters, raising some land masses, lowering other land masses, and that accounts for a number of things. Mass erosion is just one of them. Now, drop your place in the 104th Psalm. Go back to Genesis 1. Let's see what happened on day 3, and we can know how God did something else. Genesis 1, 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it became so. God called the dry land earth, the gathering together of the waters called he seas. God saw that it was good. Why well, simple. Genesis 8 is commentary on Genesis 1. tells you how God caused the dry land to appear. And the waters in one place, the dry land in another, just raising land masses, and the waters flow, flowing off. Now, I'll give you a little extra while we're here. Look at uh, verse 11. God said, let the earth bring forth grass, herb yielding seed, fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. And here's what I was talking about on the tree of life, after his kind. The tree of life, to produce the knowledge, wisdom and knowledge to rule and reign, that's all it could have resulted in had man eaten of it after the fall. Man in no position to eat of it had nothing to do with the longevity of life. It's after its kind. Now, what I wanted to point out here was we have the restoration of a ruined creation, and we have man seen in here, the restoration of ruined man, and it's after events on days one and two that the earth was able to bring forth, and it's only after man being restored reaches a certain point 
within what's seen here in the antitype that man is able to bring forth. You see, a newborn Christian can't really bring forth. He has to learn a little bit. He has to, uh, in the antitype of uh, what's seen on day two, he has to be brought into some state of maturity, and the more mature he comes, the more he can bring forth. That idea uh, is seen here on day three. Now go back to chapter eight. Let's read a few verses and bring this to a close. I'm taking a lot of time, but uh, I think uh, I think you'll find it worth it once we look at uh, the remainder of this chapter, and I'll show you how that we can know that the ark did not come to rest on a mountain peak at the end of 150 days. Go down to verse 5. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. Now we go from uh, the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, to about two and one-half months later. And it's only two and a half months or so later that the tops of the mountains were seen. These are not the tops of surrounding mountains. That is, with the arcs sitting on a mountain peak and the water's going down, down, leaving the arcs sitting up on that mountain peak. If so, there's going to be all kinds of dry land around that arc. Because the, uh, the heights of the mountains over there today, it would have had to go down about another 4,000 feet. But again, that's... Uh, not a bona fide statement because we don't know the heights of the mountains then. But still, with the water decreasing, decreasing, there would have been quite a bit of dry land around that ark. Now let's see what happens here. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days, 40 more days, 11th month, 10th day. We're almost four months beyond the end of uh, the rain coming down, the water's coming up. We're four months into the time that the waters have been continually decreasing. Now let's see what happens. Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dry, dried up from off the earth. Also he sent forth a dove to see if the waters were abated, if they had gone down from off the face of the earth. Look at verse 9. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. She returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. The ark was still floating on water a sufficient distance from land that the dove could find no place for the sole of her foot. And we know from what it goes on to state that in verse 4, the ark did not come to rest on a mountain, it was placed above, that is, God located the ark at a place above the Ararat range, showing in the typology Israel above the destroyed kingdoms of this world. Now, I think because of time, we'd better stop there and pick up at that point tomorrow. Now, do you see the complete picture? Just one minute or so. We have the church removed in the person of Enoch. Then... In the person of Noah, his family, Israel, going through a time of trouble, typified by the flood. And at the end, all of this, God is bringing things to pass relative to this nation, relative to the Gentile nations, bringing the times of the Gentiles to an end, because at the end of this time, Israel, in the type, going over into the antitype, is pictured as above all of these destroyed 
kingdoms, which in the antitype would be Gentile kingdoms. Now, we'll pick up and deal more with that tomorrow. Our Father, we're thankful that you've allowed us to look into your word. Just take your word and bear it home to the hearts of individuals. It's in Christ's name. Amen.